Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome, everyone, to the 15th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good afternoon to you, Matt. Good afternoon, Mark. Mark, you want to uh, tell them where we're at? Yeah, so as we mentioned last week on the podcast, we are recording live from um, Aurora, Colorado right now. So we have a Commonwealth uh, conference here this week, and uh, we brought the podcasting equipment to uh, do our little podcast from out here, Matt. Love it. It's a little chilly uh, compared to the Midwest right now. We're about 40 minutes outside Denver, and we're really excited. We're getting a lot of knowledge um, on the trip, and so, so far it's been great. Yeah. So a little later, we'll share some tidbits from the first couple sessions that we've been a part of. But um, as always, we will start off with the performance of the indexes that we track. And these numbers as are as of the market close on September 30th. Um, so this will be a year to date through the end of September. And then obviously, the monthly numbers will be for the full month of September. So the S&P 500 index was up 1.72% in September and for the year up 18.74%. The Dow was up 2.05% for the month and up 17.51% for the year. The NASDAQ composite uh, was up 0.46 for the month and up 20.56 for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 was up 2.04% for the month and up 14.13% for the year. Uh, The International Index X United States was up 2.48% for the month and up 10.69% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently sits at 1.79%, the two-year Treasury yield at 1.48%, and the 10-year Treasury at 1.6%. So um, before we get started, um, this is kind of a makeshift uh, podcast in terms of the audio and stuff. So Matt and I did our best we could, but we're in our hotel room right now and didn't have a whole lot to work with. So if the audio is a little different uh, this time, we're sharing a mic. So um, everything should be back to normal next week in terms of audio for you guys. Um, So moving on, Matt, uh, discussing big news and headlines, uh, current events for the week. Um, Do you want to kind of get started with that? Yeah, I mean, not much has changed, uh, listeners, uh, compared to last week. So just briefly, uh, markets focused on the Federal Reserve, what they're going to be doing, um, and then they're watching, of course, economic data. And we'll give you a couple of those tidbits in a second. U.S.-China trade is still a focus in our view of the markets. The impeachment inquiry uh, status is still... um, Uh, markets paying attention, though I don't think it's really that concerned. Uh, And then um, Q3 earnings season is about to begin uh, coming up here, Mark. Yeah, so um, the real major first week of earnings season is going to be the week of October 15th, where the banks begin to report, um, and then all the major companies uh, will report in the weeks coming after that. Um, so a little volatile week to start the fourth quarter, Matt, um, in the, the month of October here. Um, typically, the month of October is pretty favorable to investors. Uh, obviously, it wasn't last year uh, with the big sell-off we had in Q4, so people are wondering if that's going to happen again. Um, 
I think you know a lot of people were spooked by the ISM manufacturing index num uh, index number that came out earlier in the week um, that kind of sent markets reeling after being up about a half percent in the first half hour of trading of the new quarter. But then after that um, ISM number came out. Um, people got a little concerned and we saw markets sell off for the next couple of days. So do you want to just run people through again what the ISM manufacturing index is and how that um, kind of relates to them and to the markets? Absolutely, Mark. So uh, first of all, for listeners, why this economic data is important is because the market is trying to uh, judge or forecast what the Federal Reserve is going to do with U.S. interest rates. So this specific data point that Mark is talking about is called the ISM Manufacturing Index. And it's a survey of 300 uh, purchasing managers across uh, the US. And it has a 20% weighting um, of some different areas like employment, uh, uh, future uh, production, um, you know, supplier deliveries, if they're uh, coming very quickly or they're taking a long time. They have a couple different areas they look at. Now, the issue with this latest data point, Mark, is the index came in the lowest since 2009, okay? So I think that's taken some people by surprise, right? And so the market has started off negative here in the fourth quarter. And as you alluded to, it's typically more of a positive month. So I saw a tidbit of research from Bespoke Investment Group. We uh, quote their research often on the podcast. They're a good independent uh, research firm. Uh, they go on to look at other times when the stock market opens up the fourth quarter down more than 1% on the first day of trading, okay? And so the data goes back to the 30s and there are 14 instances in history where this has occurred. Of the 14 mark in Bespoke's research, four of them, the market was down in October of the 14. But if you look at the whole fourth quarter of these instances, only one of the 14 where the market was negative for the entire fourth quarter. So I know it's a data point, but I, I think that we are highlighting this specifically because I don't think it's as big of a deal as the, maybe the markets made out to be the first uh, couple trading days of the quarter, and I'll let you give your opinion. Yeah, exactly. I think you did a good job describing that. And, you know, we, over time, have moved from more of a manufacturing economy um, to be a little bit more diversified. So our economy is pretty much driven on consumer spending. Um, so I could make the argument, I think, that the ISM number isn't as relevant anymore as it used to be, although I still like to see that moving in the right direction. I just don't think it's, um, you know, an as accurate data point as it once was just due to the way our economy works today. No, Mark, I think it's an excellent point. The other thing I'll kind of add in there is this. When it comes to the manufacturing index, remember, the closer we get to the election next year, I do think it could affect the psyche of not only the consumers, but the business side of the equation. And when you have uncertainty surrounding such important um, topics such as corporate tax reform, is that still going to be around next November after the election? So it doesn't surprise me that the data is coming in a little soft. I guess I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. No, I definitely agree with that. And while we're on the, uh, the recession talk trains and data points and that, I saw a tweet um, by Bill Hester earlier this week. 
and it essentially has a chart of a recession warning composite. So this recession warning composite combines the ISM manufacturing index less than 50, which we have, uh, a recent inverted yield curve, what we talked about on previous podcasts. So if people want to dive deeper into that, we're not going to get into that today, but um, we do have uh, an inverted curve still with the three-month and the 10-year. Um, and we had it with the two year and the 10 year. So that has happened. Um, and the third component of this warning composite is year over year consumer confidence less than zero, which we also have. Um, and it's just a chart that shows highlighted areas of when this has happened in the past. And typically, again, it coincides with a recession almost 100% of the time, not quite. Um, but, you know, it's just another indicator that we are seeing signs of things slowing down. But then on the other side of things, Matt, you know, we see data points that it's not slowing down because, you know, money has been coming out of the stock market and we're still hovering near four to five percent off of all time highs. So, yeah, I mean, this has made our uh, investment committee meetings uh, within our practice, you know, interesting because, you know, you have so many cross currents right now in the marketplace, Right. And at the end of the day, um, we have to be very forward-looking and saying, where is this market not going to be next week? Not in a month, but we got to be forward-looking and say, where do we realistically think the market's going to be 12 to 18 months from now? And I think that historically has served our practice very well. It's served our clients very well with the way that we make these investment decisions. Mm -hmm. But I, I could imagine for some of these listeners who don't have a professional in their life uh, who's managing their, their portfolio, this is a time where they're getting a lot of conflicting data. Yeah. Is a good way of saying yeah. it? Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. A um, couple other um, things that we saw for the week, just an interesting chart that Ritholtz Wealth Management um, posted on Twitter. And this was back uh, a chart of the 10-year treasury rate um, going back all the way to 1981. So, um, or actually a little further than that, but in 1981, the 10-year treasury rate peaked at an all-time high of 15.84%. Now that sounds pretty crazy from where it is today because the 10-year trades at about a little under 2% right now. So that's just kind of crazy to see on a chart, man. I just thought it was interesting because, you know, people... Old, older generations were used to having, you know, treasury rates and CDs and checking accounts even that paid a ton of interest. And it's just a new normal today. Yeah. I mean, now now you've heard on previous uh, podcasts for the listeners out there that there, you know, there's a lot of developed nations that have negative interest rates, right? You know, the European Union, some uh, Eastern uh, Asian countries like like Japan do. I mean, imagine having money at your local bank right now, like all these listeners do and they're checking in savings and you're actually paying the bank to hold your deposits. Think about that for a second. Yeah. Sounds backwards to me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No. Um, I got one more thing I want to throw out yeah. there, Mark, before I turn it back to you. Um, I want to make sure the listeners know that Congress has passed a continuing resolution to keep the U.S. government open through November 21st. And I think why that is important for listeners to know is that as we kind of go through some of the impeachment inquiries that you're currently seeing, um, I think some of the, let's call it, um, fighting between parties 
I think will become more visible in the end of November when they have to negotiate uh, keeping the government open. And I think the continuing resolution was passed prior to the impeachment inquiry. So I think that that raises likelihood, in my opinion, of a potential government shutdown at the end of November. I just want to throw it out there. Yeah. Yeah. And we've seen that before, especially with this administration, too. So that'll be definitely something that we should all be keeping an eye on. Um, The last kind of point that I want to make quickly, um, Matt, is just the growth versus value conversation. Um, When I talk about growth versus value, I'm talking about growth stocks versus value stocks. Um, So there's been a lot of stuff out there in the news cycle about growth versus value and value has been outperforming the last month and is this where the tide's going to turn that over the past 10 years growth has significantly outperformed but is the tide going to turn to value stocks mark why don't you take a second and tell people the difference between a growth and a value stock uh, big picture in general yeah exactly so a growth stock uh what i would categorize it is that it is a company that is growing revenue and in some cases earnings um, in a decent double-digit fashion. So yeah. I would classify a growth stock um, that's growing uh, revenues at 20% per year. Um, you know, They're still working on getting the bottom line going in most cases because they're new. Um, a lot of the, the newer companies are classified as these hyper-growth stocks, like people have hopes for Uber or Lyft or those type of companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so over the past you know, five years, an example of a growth stock has been Amazon. Yep. So they were generating uh, revenue uh, head over heels at you know, 20, 30, 40, 50%, but it, not, not, it wasn't necessarily translating to their bottom line. Um, so these companies tend to grow quicker and the reason why growth has outperformed value is people want to return on their money and these companies were innovating and generating so much revenue growth that it was just kind of crazy. Um, and a value stock, I would, I would classify a company as a strong underlining consistent business and business model that's growing revenue and earnings consistently in the mid to high single digits. So a good example, Mark, for, for listeners in those areas be like telecom stocks or maybe yeah. certain healthcare yeah. or utility names, mm-hmm. just, give, just to give people some flavor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so there's been a conversation about this and you know what's better, growth or value over the long term. And my answer, Matt, is I really don't care. <laughs> I want I want to own I want to own stocks that are going up. Yeah. Um, so if it's value, if it's growth, if it's a small cap, mid cap, large cap, I really don't care. It's just, you know, we follow the data and once one starts to outperform the other over a longer period of time, then I'm going to want to own, if that's going to be growth or value, I'm agnostic to that. So for the listeners, you know, if you own a index fund, um, a popular one, Mark, is the S&P 500 index, right? You, it's the first thing you highlight uh, at the beginning of the podcast, the returns, Yep. You know, there's a big portion of that index that is growth oriented and a big portion that's value oriented. And the reason we're highlighting this for, for, for listeners right now is growth oriented investments have been outperforming value the last several years. And as we're starting to see the market become more volatile, which you and I have been discussing on this podcast, people have sought safety short term. And that's why you're seeing these value stocks being propped up lately. Yeah. And it goes back to your original comment. It's bringing the debate back. Is value starting to take over growth when growth's been in vogue? Yeah. 
Right. And I think you have to go into the conversation about where we're at with interest rates. Yeah. And with rates as low as they are, money's going to seek a return. And that's why, in my opinion, growth has been so popular lately. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So I just wanted to throw that out there because I, I feel like I hear it every day, the debate about growth versus value. And my opinion of it is, you know, I don't really care and neither should you because you want to own stuff that's going up, <laughs> especially relative to the S&P 500. So that's right. I mean, just for listeners to know, um, there are some money management shops that have a definite uh, favor or slant to them. They're a value shop, they're a growth shop, or they're a large cap growth shop. Um, just for listeners to understand that are not clients of ours, we are completely agnostic when it comes to growth or value as well as market capitalizations. We're go anywhere. So that's a good way to understand that when we're talking, we don't have a bias. And I think it's important for listeners to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, so do you have anything else in terms of research, tweets, or any other highlights, Matt, right now? No, I mean, with the conference, those are my two that I wanted to highlight this week, Mark. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, with the conference, Matt and I actually sat in an interesting, um, session this afternoon, uh, and we talked about branding and we're kind of brainstorming some good ideas of how we can, um, enhance our client experience, you know, at the firm. Absolutely. So if people listening have any ideas or any recommendations for us, we're going to be welcoming those conversations because I think for clients, um, you know, over the next year, two years, you'll start to see some changes to our firm and mm -hmm. for a good way, um, in terms of enhancing that client experience and, um, doing whatever we can to make people feel comfortable when they come into our office. So, I mean, really for me, Mark, what it's about at the end of the day is making sure clients understand um, why they have us. And at the end of the day, you know, we don't want them worrying about their money. That's our job. Okay. So when we wake up at 6 a.m. in the morning, you know, the first thing we're looking at is the markets. This is us. We live and breathe this stuff. We love it. And I think it's making sure that clients understand um, the value we bring to the table and how hard we really do work for them. And we want it to be a very authentic experience. Yeah, for sure. And another thing that I got from the um, session was that a lot of times, you know, people have been managing their investments or their taxes, their estate planning and kind of doing all that themselves. And we're here to say, hey, you know, it's time for you to go have fun in life. Let us do this work for you now so you don't have to worry about it. And you can go have fun and do what you want to do in life. Yeah, I mean, really, at the end of the day, it's just finding someone you can really, really trust. And we have worked so hard, you, me, our other partner, Eric, Mark, and in, in building this practice to a point where clients know they can really entrust their, their life savings with us. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it's about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if anyone has any ideas um, for that part of our business, we'd love to hear um, your opinions on that because uh, the more feedback we can get, I think the better we can make ourselves. So. Absolutely. Um, so we are uh, don't have a formal financial planning topic of the week this week just because we wanted to talk about some stuff with the conference and everything. Um, but we did have a decent amount of questions um, from Dennis and Amy. So thank you both for submitting some questions to us. I know um, we won't get to all of Amy's questions today, but we're going to knock out a couple and then we'll um, answer the rest of them or a couple more of them next week. Um, so there's a question from Dennis uh, as a follow-up to last week's financial planning topic of the week, which um, was centered around properly transferring assets after um, someone has passed. Mm -hmm. 
and transferring that to the next generation. So if you want to hear that podcast, that was episode 14 from last week. So uh, Dennis says, um, enjoyed the this week's podcast and actually all the other ones too. Um, so thank you, Dennis, for that kind comment. Um, he goes on to say, especially the, the wealth transfer to the next generation discussion. Have you heard of something called disclaiming an inheritance? That is, I disclaim some or all of an inheritance going to me and it goes to one of my beneficiaries. Just wanted to make sure that this was an option. So do you want to start with this one, Matt? Yes. So um, Dennis, to give um, our legal disclaimer, uh, Mark and myself, we're not attorneys. So we're going to give you just general, general kind of big picture uh, comments on the topic. I'll say this. If you are named the beneficiary in someone's trust or will, and you um, are first in line to inherit that money, you do have the ability to um, say that I don't want this portion and it goes to the next person in line. Now, why would someone do that? The first thing that comes to mind for me is maybe there is uh, pending litigation. I'll give you an example. Maybe I have a client who's a doctor and they're currently going through a lawsuit. That would be an example that maybe we see who's next in line within the family. Not an attorney, big picture, okay? Um, the other thing that has to come into play here um, with, um, in essence, uh, passing on an inheritance, it could be a tax situation. So it could be husband and wife. You know, when the passing of the first spouse occurs, the surviving spouse does not get any stepped-up cost basis on any of the investments. Whereas, Mark, in this example, if it went to the next generation, a child, they do receive a stepped-up cost basis. Mm -hmm. So there might be a consideration in another option as to why. Yeah. But I'll, I'll leave it at this, Dennis. It's not a uh, common occurrence. And I would say that if it is a topic that is coming up, uh, we definitely would want to connect you with an estate planning attorney to talk through the ramifications. But I would say it's not common. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I second all of that that you just said, Matt. Okay. And I think it makes it um, a little more muddier in terms of clearing that up after someone has passed. So my recommendation, Dennis, would be, you know, if there's a situation like that um, that you've seen or that you're a part of, is to have that conversation with whoever is passing the money to the next generation. And if that's, you know, if that's you and you want to disclaim those assets, talk to the person you're going to be inheriting those assets from and get it changed before they pass. Sure. I think that that would, you know, cleaner. it would make it cleaner for people. So to avoid that. So thank you, Dennis. Um, Thanks, I know Dennis. You're a big contributor to the question. So please keep them coming. Um, first question from Amy is, um, or more just like a comment um, that I just want to uh, touch on really quickly is, Maybe you can have links somewhere to the articles that you refer to. Some I might like to read. And thank you, Amy. We are actually already thinking about this. Um, there might just be a couple things on our side that we have to do compliance-wise with our broker-dealer Commonwealth just to make sure that we're all good to do that. Um, but I think that that would be a huge benefit because you know we do talk a lot about a lot of articles and a lot of charts and graphs and stuff like that. So it would be nice for everyone to have that content. So we're going to work on getting a separate tab on our website to um, post show notes and charts and articles and all that stuff that we discuss so that everyone can um, you know, go and peruse that information at their own time. So hopefully that will be coming in the very near future. Thank you, Amy, for the feedback. I mean, that's exa exactly how this podcast will continue to grow and get better. So thank you. 
And then Amy's um, second question refers to some of the stuff we discussed earlier and over the past couple of episodes. You have referred to that there are signs of a recession and we should not make decisions based on emotions. What facts would make us react and what would we do if we were to react? So um, I'll start with this one, Amy. Um, You know, as Matt and I have mentioned several times, there's a bunch of data points um, that you can take into consideration before a recession hits. For example, the yield curve inverting. Um, Another example, the ISM manufacturing index that Matt just discussed earlier today. That number going below 50 usually isn't a good sign. Um, Consumer confidence, like we also mentioned, um, being negative year over year. That's not a good sign. But the one thing to keep in mind, Amy, is that a definition of a recession is two uh, quarters in a row of negative GDP growth. And we haven't had one quarter of that yet, Matt. Correct. So it's one of those things, Amy, where you can have a lot of data points, but there could be a lag time to when the actual recession happens. Um, So the way we look at it is we just keep our eyes on the markets. And, you know, if we don't see any major... uh, uh, irregular, irregular behavior. I would guess I would call it, it Matt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at least for me, that that's what I look at. Is you know, are the defensive areas of the market outperforming the aggressive areas of the market over the long term? Over the short term, you know, defensive names have outperformed for the past couple of months, but that's not enough to convince me um, to flip and say, you know, we're headed into a recession in the next couple of months. Um, the answer. Amy, to that question is um, depends on who you ask, really. Um, you can't really put a puzzle together and say, if this happens, that happens, and A, B, and C happen, then we're going to have a recession because it just doesn't work that way. Um, so, Matt, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, Amy, I mean, the best thing I could, I could throw out there is this. At the end of the day, if you have money invested in the market and you're thinking to yourself, well, I need to be aware of the next recession when that's coming. I think I would turn that on its back and say this. We need to make sure that we are investing for someone's risk, goals, and objectives, and time horizon. And really, at the end of the day, when you have someone like myself or Mark managing money for a client, that's what's in the forefront of our mind. So are we cognizant of the fact that, hey, we're still keeping stock exposure on the table and you know uh, the threat of a recession is higher now than it was a year ago and we need to be cognizant of that? Absolutely. But we're also cognizant of the fact that, you know, we're not worried about what the market's going to do next week or next month. And we are thinking big picture. So I think when it comes to the recession talk, I'm more thinking along the lines of what's the potential risk to the downside and how long can it last? And when I'm disseminating data, Amy, that's what's going through my mind. And so the best thing I can throw out there is at the end of the day, We need to continue to make sure that clients are invested for their goals, for their risk, and then leave it up to, in this example, Mark and I to continue to make sure that we are invested the right way. Is that a good way of saying it, Mark? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then just the last comment on that is it depends on the client. So if your goal, let's just make up a hypothetical example, Matt, if, you know, we have um, a young couple who has a young kid and they're saving for um, a 529 account for them to go to college. You know, if we have, um, you know, a parent who's in their mid forties and they need the money in two years for that 
uh, their kid to go to college, then we would make a different decision if we were advising that client over a client who has a baby that's two years old. So obviously we would probably move some move some of the the, the investments around to protect that 529 that needs to be used in two years. And with the client that has 20 years to save for that, we're going to remain relatively aggressive because they need that money to grow and it doesn't really make sense to put that money in government bonds or, you know, short-term investment grade bonds. Um, so it really depends on your goals, Amy, too, on, on what you want to do with that money um, in retirement and if it's enough. So it, it really just depends on the situation of what moves you should make uh, during times like these. Well, well put, Mark. Well yeah. put. We got time um, for one more? Yeah, yeah. And then um, the last one that Amy had was, why do you have Commonwealth as a brokerage firm? So I'll leave you to this, Matt, since you selected Commonwealth back when you started, uh, or a couple of years into starting the firm and you know what they do for us and why you chose them. Yes, yeah, so uh, Amy, um, Commonwealth Financial Network is our broker dealer. At the end of the day, um, they provide um, a trading uh, platform for us. They provide a lot of compliance and governance for the practice. And for me, at the end of the day, it's having uh, independence and flexibility. You know, we are not employees of Commonwealth. We are independent contractors. Mark, uh, myself, and Eric, we own this business. Um, they are our clients. They're, they're not Commonwealth's clients. And at the end of the day, we can run money the way that we think is best for our clients. We don't have any outside influences. Um, you know, back in the day when I was at uh, a big brokerage firm, it wouldn't be uncommon to sit there and say, hey, we're underwriting XYZ product. And you would get a lot of pressure uh, to um, utilize this product. We don't have any of those constraints within our practice. So at the end of the day, I am uh, very happy that we can run money the way that we want, that's in the best interest of our clients. Um, and to me, that is one of the pivotal building blocks of this practice. Yeah. Mark, yeah. any comments? No, and I think just in addition to what you said about running money the way we want to, but just running the business the way we want to. Um, because it's a little bit different when you're working with a large bank or a wirehouse, um, you know, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, UBS, um, JP Morgan, or any bank that yep. anyone would be at. Um, we get to decide, you know, how much staff we have and, you know, what those positions are for our staff. Um, so we get to build the business the way we want to, and we're not told how to do that too. So in addition to having the flexibility with, um, the investments and being able to manage our clients' wealth the way that's what we feel like is in their best interest. Um, you know, we get to do the same thing with our business. Well put, Mark. So, I mean, Amy, we're going to continue to work hard for clients. Um, we really, really appreciate um, all the questions that you submitted to, uh, to Mark and I this past week and keep them coming. Yeah. Yeah. So with that, I think we'll probably call it a wrap here for the 15th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. So uh, we all hope you have a wonderful weekend. And again, apologize if uh, audio wasn't um, on point this week, but we're working with the best stuff that we have right now. So um, just wanted to get a podcast out there to you guys. And obviously, please keep coming with the questions. Um, because at the end of the day, that's what we want this podcast to evolve to is talking about things that's most important to you um, and that can help you in your financial future and your financial lives. All right. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next Thursday.
you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.